there are definitely several low points where I thought about not doing it anymore. And what I always kept returning back to was I want this to exist in the world. And now I've talked mm. to enough people. Like I'd done over a hundred user interviews by that point. So I had talked to enough people who really wanted this to exist and that I knew would use it if we built it right. And I just kept grounding back in that is like sort of what we call the user problem. But for me, it was like my problem. Right. <laughs> um, Hi, honey. Hi, honey. Guys, I chat with Sanchali Paul, who's the founder and CEO of Juro, which is an application that helps us understand our carbon footprint and what changes we can make to be more sustainable. I had a great chat. Did you enjoy the discussion? I enjoyed it. And also a very important topic. Yes. So we learn about what climate change is. Are we on track toward 2050 goals to reduce emissions? How, what changes we can make in our day-to-day to be more sustainable, the amount of influence we as consumers have, which is 65%, which gave me a ton of optimism in terms of can we make a difference? We do need a lot of political will as well. So learn more, tune in. And then she tells me all about offsets because I was really confused. I don't know if you are, but I'm hearing a ton about it, which is good, which is bad. And she helps me really navigate the space. So enjoy this one. Really important. And let's preserve our planet. Yeah. Hi. It's good to see you. How's it going? It's going well. I was going to call you Ms. Pal. I know that you're married, but you have your last name, but I don't know if it's like Mrs. Pal or Ms. Pal. Do you know what I mean? That's a good question. I don't know either. (laughs) You can call me whatever you want. As long as it's not Miss Gawande. (laughs) Oh, it sounds like you have a strong opinion about that. Tell me more. Um, My, I think my mom and my dad were very clear with me when I was growing up that my name is my identity and I shouldn't change mm-hmm. it. And when my parents got married, my mom initially, I think she was planning to change her name, but then she talked to my dad about it and he was like, why? It doesn't make any sense. It's your name. Why would you yeah. take my name? You have your name and I have my name. He sounds and great. She also was a PhD candidate and like had some publications in her name and he was like you'll lose the like ability to connect those publications for your career and and in the end they talked about it and they decided that they were each going to keep their names and um yeah I've always I did have a brief moment when I was a kid thinking that if I ever met someone with the last name chocolate I would change my name (laughs) because then I could be some Charlie chocolate just be so cool (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's so great. Has Rohit considered changing his last name to chocolate? <laughs> I did tell him. He didn't seem interested. Oh, come on, Rohit. That would be fun. I love that. And so what about you and Rohit? So it was just from the beginning as you started dating, I like you a lot, dude, but we're not changing names or was it a different kind of conversation or never even happened? I mean, I don't think it came up for a while. But yeah. Once it did, you know, over like dinner with some, you know, in in the context of like conversation, he realized what strong an opinion I had, how strong an opinion I had. Um, And I don't think he was surprised um, at that point. That's great. 
I love it. I agree with you. Same. Didn't change my last name. I think like your dad, Machin basically had the exact same reaction, but it's so strange right now. Well, not you've been married for longer than two months, but like for me, it's so strange because it's, he's my husband now. Husband just feels like such a serious word <laughs> and nothing's really changed. We're still best friends. We still share everything and going through life together. Uh, and then now I, I don't know, like for instance, if I, like I, I call my friends sometimes, like I would say Miss Sunchali or Miss Pal, but are you a Mrs. now? Am I a Mrs. Kamara, Miss yeah. Kamara? What's the nomenclature there? It's so funny that like the way that we've been taught to refer to each other has so much to do with our, our like marriage status. Yeah. Whereas for men, there's no difference, right? Like if they're Mr. or Mr. It doesn't change. Uh, yeah. And I think it's like, there's, especially as we're having newer generations with hopefully more and more women working and playing, uh -huh. you know, different roles in the house or like, you know, also their partners staying home, taking care of kids, like having more shared responsibilities and less roles defined by gender. I think um, some of these practices are kind of like, what? doesn't make any sense anymore. Totally. Marcin, can I ask you to look up what Mrs. means? Does it mean anything? Because it's kind of Mr. with an S after. Or is it oh, just... yeah. Because like to your exact point, it's so it's, it, you're tagging the woman onto the guy. And I know these practices came from like the 1100s in England. You got to a point where there were so many Jennifers where you needed to have the last name. <sighs> and this was to identify them. And this seemed to be a good process uh, at that point in time. Okay. So Machin, Machin looked it up. It says, miss, you should use miss when addressing girls. You should use MS when unsure of a woman's marital status, if she's unmarried and prefers to be addressed with a marital neutral title Ooh. and MRS misses when addressing a married woman. Yeah. So, but I was more interested Machin. What is MRS? Does it mean anything? But anyway, whatever. I think can... that's a good observation. Right? We decided like that's why it is. Yeah, yeah. But I like it. I'll just, from <laughs> now on, just say Miss Miss uh, Kamara and Miss Paul. Marital ne status neutral. I like it. Marital neutral. I love it. All right. Miss Sanchali Pal, on that note, uh, brought you on to chat about things climate crisis. Love what you're building with Joro and so excited to learn more from you today. I thought we could start off by having you define what the climate crisis is. It's such a broad, all-encompassing topic. Maybe we can narrow it down for listeners. I mean, that's a really important question and a really hard one. The climate crisis is basically this phenomenon that's been happening um, as a result of human-caused emissions. The We didn't realize it's not like anyone did it on purpose, but the fossil fuels that we've been using to power our industrial revolution and our society, gas, oil, coal, when we burn them, they release carbon into the atmosphere. And the earth has a natural carbon cycle. So carbon is actually in itself not a bad thing. It's a natural element. It's the most commonly occurring element on earth. It, it exists in all living creatures and plants. Um, but when you but carbon has a certain natural balance in the world. Um, so there's supposed to be a certain amount of carbon in the atmosphere in the form of CO2 or other greenhouse gases. There's supposed to be carbon stored in soil and plants. Um, there's supposed to be carbon stored in rich 
oils that are naturally found under the earth in abundance. And when we have been over the last several uh, centuries drilling for oil and burning it or coal or other fossil fuels, we're releasing more carbon into the atmosphere than there was naturally. So now our, our earth is not in balance anymore. Now there's far more atmospheric carbon than can be naturally absorbed by mass and matter on earth. Um, and as a result, the earth is heating up. Um, all of these greenhouse gases are enveloping the earth and causing us to have warmer and warmer temperatures. Um, and those warmer temperatures have lots of um, effects that are unnatural and are causing um, stress to life on earth. Um, that happens in the form of uh, temperatures, uh, you know, heat waves. We're all experiencing higher temperatures than we've ever had before. Sea level rise, glaciers melting, um, species going extinct that can't necessarily um, survive in the new climate that we have. Um, and, and frankly, humans too. We're seeing huge climate migrations, lots of wars being caused uh, by lack of water, by changing temp temperatures, by drought, um, and people all over the world affected by storms, affected by flooding, by heat waves. Um, already we're seeing climate, climate change caused by human activity has affected 85% of the world's population directly. Um, and so this the climate crisis, I think, if you don't have great language, I mean, the word itself makes it sound like it's something very removed related to something that's outside of us. But in reality, it's a human crisis. It's a crisis yeah. for human life on Earth, for all life on Earth. Um, and that's the, the future that we're concerned about when people are concerned about climate change. They're worried about their own futures. And re in reality, like we're already in 2022, like 2030 is right around the corner. 2050 is right around the corner. Um, if people are having children, they're worried about their children and what kind of world their children are going to be growing up in. It's now this like very present human concern, not this sort of future uh, right. detached state. Right. I love how you described that starting from the very beginning with carbon is present in organic matter period in plants animals the atmosphere it's meant to be here but we've just tipped over the balance of how much we need started with drilling oil and then gasoline and having all these byproducts with farming etc and we've, we've really outdone ourselves in not the greatest way the most pushback I get from climate change and the trouble with it, right, is you can't necessarily see it is what a lot of people say. You can't necessarily see it. It feels like it's here, but it's not necessarily happening today. It feels futuristic, which is why I like that you brought up 85% of people are affected today. And if you're having kids right now, you're a lot more aware of the implications of with 2050s around the corner, we have these UN development goals and what is 2100 going to look like? Can you speak more about how it's affecting us today, this 85% of us? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of shocking to see how much more climate has been in the news in the last few years, even since I started the company three years ago. Um, climate has become such a bigger topic of conversation. And I think the main reason why is because more and more people are being affected by it. Um, people are much more likely to care about the climate crisis if they're seeing its effects locally in their lives, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, fires, we've had more fires. I live in California, in Oakland, and we've yeah. had more wildfires here in the last three years than in any past three years, you know? Um, we're seeing massive storms. Like, I think it was Hurricane Ida, right? That just came mm -hmm. through. Um, Florida. Florida, Hurricane Ian. Ian. And, and like, <laughs> I think 
all of Cuba lost power, like the entire island. Um, like Puerto Rico was deeply affected by a hurricane recently. The floods in Pakistan have been insane. Like there's just, um, it's been crazy to see the effects of the climate crisis in the last few years. Storms are um, becoming more frequent, more intense. These like once in a lifetime storms are happening every year. Um, and that's what we all expect to see if this continues is, I mean, it's only 2022. Between now and 2050, we have a lot of work to do. Also, the other thing that I'm seeing is droughts. So like we see increased heat and increased cooling. We have colder winters, extremely hot summers. So we survived our first summer in Austin, Texas this year, and it was hotter than many of the other summers or so we're told, or they're just trying to keep us living in Austin. <laughs> um, but it was like 40 degrees Celsius, which is wild. Uh, so definitely feeling those effects ourselves as well. When you think about the worst case scenario, what does that look like to you of the climate crisis? I mean, it's pretty scary if you actually sit with it. I think that's part of what's so hard is trying to imagine a world like that is very difficult, um, meaning it's painful. It's We're seeing these storms happen more and more often. We're seeing, you know, 2020, the wildfires, I couldn't go out of my home for several days because the air quality was so bad. Um, and I think that would become pretty normal unless most of the Southwestern United States, even outside of California into Arizona, um, New Mexico, even into Texas, they expect wildfires to, to spread across most of the United States um, from the Southwest and potentially into other parts of the US. We saw fires in London this summer. So like all over the world, nowhere is gonna be spared from the effects of the climate crisis. Though of course, some places will be hit worse than others. Um, so there'll be periods of time where we'll have to be indoors. I worry that we'll, if we don't take drastic action now, that we'll see a world like COVID, but because of the climate crisis, like. There were some memes that came out around the beginning of COVID where it was like this like little wave was like COVID and everyone was like, oh, this is scared. And then no one saw this like giant tsunami coming behind us, which was the climate crisis. And that's really how I feel is that like it's a slower, longer term, more gradual process, but it's happening faster than ever and it's changing within our lifetimes. And I worry that we're going to be in a world where there's going to be like shelter in place for most of the year for climate reasons. Um, in much of the world and where many people across the world will not have the resources uh, to deal with it. There'll be lots of lots more climate refugees than there ever were before. Um, and parts of the world will have massive parts of their population die. Like, you know, entire cities, like the entire city of Bombay, the entire city of New York could be underwater. Um, there's lots of, um, I think lots of unsettling changes that are just um, going to really change our quality of life across the world. Yeah, totally. We're hearing about rising water levels and how vast swaths of land will go underwater, right? The coasts, lots of Europe, the Scandinavian countries. I've not heard this before of the shelter in place of what you're describing. Is this from extreme heat and extreme cold? It could be extreme heat. It could be extreme cold. It could be poor air quality. Um, it could be right. extreme wind. It could also just be because we have to stop using energy because the climate crisis is progressing so quickly. And so like things like, I, I think what I really realized as someone who's grown up kind of internationally, that flying is really a luxury. 
you know, only less than 5% of the world flies internationally every year. And so if you are someone who flies internationally, you have this kind of unique privilege that most of the world doesn't have. And it's also an extremely polluting privilege. And it's, it's really hard to grapple with because seeing the world is so important and connecting with people across the world is so important. And for those of us who have friends and family around the world, your, your heart is split all over yeah. different places. Um, COVID, I think, really reminded me how much of a luxury flying is, but it's not a guarantee that you're able to do that. Um, there's lots of things that we take for granted right now, especially living in developed cities, uh, fresh running water all the time okay. for cheap, you know, access to heat and shelter and air conditioning when we need it. Like so many things we take for granted that might not be possible in a climate disaster future. Yeah. Yeah, and I see Machin's looking up as well. Some projections of folks from Africa won't be able to live there anymore, potentially due to the heat, and will need to migrate mm -hmm. to Europe, and that'll cause conflicts. And we've already seen issues with migration from Syria or Africans trying to move north. So I can totally see yeah. how that gets out of control. And this point about like malaria mosquitoes showing up across Europe is a really great one too. Like, there's all these diseases and illnesses that um, have been isolated to certain parts of the world or certain species that are going to start spreading too. Like there's actually a really strong link between climate change and pandemics. Um, for instance, also like ticks in the U.S. is a great example of where this has already happened. Like tick season is now like the whole year instead of just yeah. a few months. And it's like there's ticks in California, not just in Massachusetts. Um, so I think there's really shifts and things that will really affect our day-to-day -day life that are just hard to understand until they happen. Wild, wild. Okay. Well, I think the good news here is countries around the world are taking note and doing their best to make amends. So we have the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and I believe the goal is, the target is zero net emissions by 2050 of carbon. How are you feeling about our progress toward that as a globe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that the scientific community has come together to set these sort of clear targets globally, because the climate crisis, like pandemics, is a really a global challenge. And there's not that many that we've dealt with successfully as a species before. Um, but it's really important to have these clear targets, like net zero by 2050. We need to be emitting no more emissions than we're drawing down by 2050 that sort of concept of balance that we were talking about earlier by 2030 much sooner in just the next you know seven-ish years That's we wild. need to it's wild like i think it's like 80 something months we have to actually basically cut emissions in half so we want to cut emissions by about 45 percent before the end of the decade so there's actually a ton of progress we want to make in just like the next two election cycles you know that's mm -hmm. pretty soon um and we that's in order to keep us on track for 1.5 to 2 degrees warming and sort of manageable is still like increasingly more difficult but manageable um, climate crisis scenarios. Um, I think, unfortunately, no country I believe in the world has um, really made progress fast enough to feel confident that we're going to hit those goals. However, there are countries that are making big strides. Um, and it doesn't, and it's still possible for sure. Um, right. And and the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, in August was a really big step in that direction. Right. And I know European countries are 
doing a good job as well, Western European countries. I remember something about wanting China to do a little bit more, getting African countries on board, but also this fact that the most of the emissions are released by a few countries, the US and China included. And so it sounds like we are able to move the needle more if we focus on those two economies. What are your thoughts there? Definitely. I think something that's really interesting about the climate crisis is that income inequality mirrors carbon inequality. So carbon emissions are directly correlated with GDP in general, because we use fossil fuels to power our economy. So until that's not true, and obviously we're trying to shift away from that, but until that's not true, that means the higher income countries have the largest impact on global emissions. I think it's something like, and, and that's true of households too, which is part of sort of the reasoning behind why Joro is important. At the household level, the top 10% of global households are responsible for 50% of emissions in the last 50, 15 years. So the top 10% of households influence 50% of global emissions. Um, and it's, it really mirrors income inequality. So that means that higher income countries, higher income households have a larger impact through their spending choices, through their lifestyle choices than anyone else. And actually, this was called out in the most recent IPCC report earlier this year. It was a really fascinating report that showed that basically higher income countries and households have the greatest potential for, through their lifestyle choices, making an impact on the climate crisis while maintaining high quality, high standards of life. Um, And that's a really amazing power to have. If you live in the U.S., you influence more emissions than 78% of the global population, just period, because because the U.S. has such a high carbon impact. Um, And if you make over $60,000 a year in the United States per person, you're in the top 10% globally. So mm-hmm. you're you're starting to be in this like not only elite group from a quality of life standpoint, but elite group in terms of power of your choices, power to make an impact on our global trajectory. Absolutely. Did they call out any concrete steps that we can take as households that have so much influence? Yes. Um, so if we think about household emissions. So household spending influences 65% of global emissions. It's certainly not the only thing that influences them. You know, policy change is incredibly important and can probably influence 100% of global emissions. Um, Companies influence basically the same amount of global emissions because they're responsible for our industries. But we as consumers also make really important choices that can influence 65% of our global emissions. Um, And we can think about our own footprints as mirroring sort of national footprints. So our footprints are broken up into our home energy use, our food and drink purchases, our shopping choices, our travel choices, and our financial decisions. Those five categories are kind of the same five categories of our national emissions, the the United States' national emissions, let's say. Um, The food and agriculture industry, for instance, is responsible for 20 to 25% of global emissions and 20 to 25% of most household footprints. Um, so if we can find an, the highest leverage points for having an impact, places where we can have an impact and we're willing to make a change, um, those choices can really affect our shared emissions and help influence companies to offer us better infrastructure, uh, better choices so that we can live more sustainable lives. So some of the things that were called out in the IPCC report, which are some of the same things that we think about in our work at Joro, are things like, how do we transport ourselves? Are we flying? 
Are we taking the train? Are we driving to work? What kind of car are we driving? Are we driving hybrid and electric vehicles? The new IRA offers some really great incentives to make those types of um, travel options more accessible to the average mm -hmm. American. Um, even in our homes, how are we powering our homes? Are we using solar energy? If we don't have access to solar energy, are we signing up for green energy through our utility provider? Um, yeah. Are we using energy efficient devices, saving money uh, and using less energy while we're at home? Everything from the clothes we buy to um, the food we eat, to the furniture we buy for our homes, to where we bank and what investments we make, all of these things, if they require energy to produce, they have a carbon impact. Yeah, yeah. I find it really motivating on a positive note that we as consumers have 65% say into the impact of carbon emissions, that just our emissions alone are worth so much. And in turn, we can make decisions that are beneficial for the planet. And I also love that that's what you're building with Juro. So coming to Juro, I think for me, at least something that I found is I find it really hard to clearly have a picture of what are my carbon emissions? How am I doing and how can I do better? How can I lower my emissions? And I even, like, I think about it in terms of when we weren't sure about what the caloric component of food was and for people who were trying to maybe lose weight or get more fit. And it's like, is orange juice good for me or is it not? I hear it's fruits and this is supposed to be healthy, but wait, it has so much sugar and should I be just drinking so much of it or not? And We've made tons and tons of strides there. And I love that in a very similar fashion, Juro is giving us a sense of, hey, this is how much energy you're spending in the clothes that you're buying, in this flight that you took, in this Uber ride. You could maybe opt for a bicycle instead or uh, a walk and in you leaving your lights on and not unplugging your computer, et cetera. So just even giving the consumer a snapshot of what that's like. Can you describe more for us what Joro is building and flesh that out for us a little further? Yeah, absolutely. The so Joro is an app that helps anyone see the carbon emissions behind their spending and take action to reduce it. Um, so you can connect your credit and debit cards and start to get a free automatic picture of where your emissions come from. The app is free to use. It always will be. Um, so you can see the carbon impact of your grocery purchase versus those clothes you bought. Um, and that's the work that our algorithms and data sets are doing behind the scenes to help give you access to that information that you have in other parts of your life. Um, and then you can take action to reduce it. You can decide to, to look up actions or guides, things like eating more vegetarian, shopping secondhand, um, turning down the thermostat or unplugging your devices, switching your bank. There's so many things that you can do. And often many of these things, um, some of them might be obvious, but some of yeah. them aren't. A lot of people don't realize you can switch to green energy through your utility provider. And it's really fast and easy, takes five minutes, and um, sometimes can even save you money depending on where in the country you live. Um, and sometimes uh, people aren't sure about, maybe I would be willing to do that, but only if it really had a high impact. You know, like I'm, I'm willing to eat more vegetarian, but I don't want to go fully vegetarian. The truth is you don't have to go fully vegetarian. Every meat meal that you are considering um, cutting down could make a big impact. I personally, that was one of the first actions I started with was um, I ate meat pretty regularly, didn't really think about it. Once I started thinking and like sort of developing this carbon consciousness, I was like, okay, let me start tracking and seeing how much meat I'm eating and what kinds. And I found that I was actually eating meat like 12 meals a week. It was when I was in college. Mm. So I was like kind of just putting stuff in the dining hall on my plate, mm -hmm. not really thinking about it. Um, yeah. 
And then I realized I started cutting down. I was like, oh, okay, I'm pretty happy with four meals a week. Well, I just lowered my carbon impact by two thirds. That's a huge amount, you know? Um, yeah. And then I cut down and now I'm at one meal a week and I've been there for 10 years, one meat meal a week. Um, and wow, for 10 years. Yeah. Then that's like great. really sustainable for me is I'm not fully vegetarian. I still have, I get to like go out one night a week and eat something meaty that I'm excited about. Um, and that makes it sustainable for me. Sustainable yeah. meaning I can sustain it uh, for a long period of time. And I think that's the kind of mindset that we're trying to help people build. Just like with diet, I think it's a great parallel is yeah. what's a sustainable diet for you. Uh, you might know that a burger is more calories than a salad. That doesn't mean you never eat a burger. You're mm -hmm. probably going to not eat a burger for three meals a day. You know, that's not good for you. Um, same with carbon. You know, the carbon impact of a burger is like 17 times the carbon impact of a vegetarian meal. So I'm not going to eat that all the time. I might still eat it once in a while. Um, makes it a lot yeah. easier that there's like impossible burgers that taste yeah. almost the same. <laughs> but no, yeah, it's we, that carbon we totally resonate. I am pescatarian. I love fish too much to give it up, but and since we started dating, Machin has cut down his meat consumption as well. I think the beauty of what you're doing, which is one meat meal per week, is it becomes an event that you look forward to. It becomes a celebration and you appreciate it even more. And that, in a way, is such a great thing, such a beautiful thing. Uh, Machin says he's cut down meat by 70%, which That's is great. Amazing. That said, we're really terrible with flights and we travel quite a bit and we feel very guilty about it. So I want to talk about offsets in a bit <laughs> and understand, are they actually going to be useful? Is this something I can actually feel good about or what? Uh, I think with clothes, we do a good job of not buying clothes, uh, sticking with them until they start to get holes in them. I do have to thank credit <laughs> to Machin for that one. <laughs> um, he at one point had like five shirts, two pants and that those were most well incredible during COVID that was his wardrobe and uh, he was embracing the Mary Kondo lifestyle. <laughs> but that's what um, it's about. I think it's about balance and like finding the places where you can make an impact. That's yeah. why I think it's really hard to say like there's one thing everyone should do because everyone's mm -hmm. life is different and everyone's financial means are different. Everyone's families are different. Um, the truth is there's a lot, having a carbon intuition helps you make the choices that are right for you. So yes, for someone who can't stop commuting to work, let's say, say you have to commute to work. Some, some people can choose to work from home, save a lot of carbon by doing that. Some people can't, they have to go into work. You have to commute 30 minutes each way to the office by car. That's the only way you can do it. Well, the carbon impact of switching from a meat meal to, to a vegetarian meal for lunch is the same as your commute that day. So mm -hmm. you could make that choice. You could decide I'm still going to commute to work, but I'm going to eat vegetarian at lunch. Yeah. Can have the same carbon impact, or you can do the other way around. You can say, I'm going to give up my commute to work, but I'm going to occasionally have a cheat meal for lunch. Um, yeah. And I think those, that's totally fine. Um, all of us have different lives and different means, but I think that was sort of like carbon awareness, carbon consciousness and working towards, um, you know, what sustainable looks like for us is really important. Absolutely. And Joro's definitely helped me and us get a better sense of this intuition, right? What does a meat meal cost? What does buying a new item of clothing versus going to the vintage store cost? We love walking anyway. So great. Don't take the Uber or walk. What I don't actually understand though, that I'd love to ask you is the impact of your bank and your financing. Can you break that down for me? 
This is interesting because I think it's a place where there's also historically not been that much research and research is coming out now that's really helpful and helping show us that actually our finances are a place where we're going to have a big impact. Um, the, there was some recent research uh, through Rainforest Network and the Outdoor Policy Outfit, some other really amazing folks who are doing research on the carbon impact of banking who have traced down fossil fuel financing is one of the areas where many of us are participating without realizing. Um, the mega banks, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, the biggest banks in the world, um, are the ones who lend the most money to fossil fuels. And the places they get the leverage for their financing is retail banking or our deposits. So our savings deposits are often used as leverage for lending to fossil fuels. Um, and that's not like any of us knew that or we're planning on doing that when we were banking, choosing our bank, or yeah. our bank account. Um, but that's actually one way that we're having a carbon impact maybe without realizing it. Uh, this new research that just came out a few months ago is showing that about $125,000 in a savings account at one of these mega banks has the same carbon impact as our entire carbon lifestyle outside of that for an average American every year. Um, and then there's also things like our 401ks, like 401ks are a huge amount of good money. Um, and a lot of them are invested in fossil fuels too. And you probably don't know it. If your company doesn't provide an, op an option for a fossil fuel free uh, 401k, you should ask for it um, and mm -hmm. see what options there are or if they can provide you options. Because also, to be honest, fossil fuels aren't the greatest long-term investment. If you're thinking about something <laughs> like a 401k or retirement fund, it's probably not in your financial best interests for that to be invested in fossil fuels if we're talking about moving to a net zero economy by the time that we're retired. And then also just direct stocks and ETFs. Um, there's lots of things. Uh, now there's actually a lot of options for fossil fuel free ETFs. Um, and generally, we're starting to see that those funds are performing better over time than ones that include fossil fuels. So the, especially for the longer term investing strategies or where you keep your long term savings, uh, some of these choices can can make a lot of sense for you. Of course, Very disclaimer, useful. I'm not yeah. a financial advisor. Yes, of course. Of <laughs> Everyone course. needs no, to no, get a financial I'm... advisor if you, yes. if you can or to use online resources to, to decide how you want to invest your money. Absolutely. Yes. I just had no idea that this was where our money and banking was being put towards. I'm sure lots of people out there didn't know that either. Okay. So Sanchali, let's take the insights you're finding through Joro. And if we were to break down for the average consumer, what are the top three things they can change in their habits today to have a positive impact toward a net zero carbon emissions future? I think it's hard to say this because everyone's life is different. For instance, if you're someone who doesn't fly, like your friends and family live pretty close to you and you're not really flying very often, then there's probably like your home energy emissions is going to be one of the biggest drivers of your carbon footprint. Uh, but if you live in a small apartment in a city and you're flying often to go home, see your family that's far away, I'm guessing your travel is probably one of the biggest uh, yeah. drivers of your emissions. But I would say like overall, the way I think about it is what we're trying to do is shift from the world we're in to a world that's fully renewable and regenerative. And so the things we need to change are each of those systems that we talked about, how we eat, how we travel, how we shop and buy goods and services, um, how we power our homes and how we manage our finances. Those are kind of like the five big five that we need to think about. And within each of those, there are shifts that we can make. And we just need to be thinking about like, if we were trying to signal to markets that we want to shift off fossil fuels, how would we make decisions in this, in this system? I choose to eat a mostly vegetarian diet, partially for health reasons, 
partially also because I'm sending a message that I want a more plant-based food system. I want a more organic food system. I want one that has more local produce. Um, and so that's the way I choose to shop because that's the kind of markets that I want to be a part of and I want to create. Um, if I also choose to shop secondhand and to mend clothing and to ask friends and family to help me with their skills so they can help me fix things around my house or my clothes because I don't want to just constantly be creating new stuff. I want to like treasure the items that I have and keep them for a long period of time. And I also like to save money when I can. Um, so within like, I think what's really cool is a lot of the actions that we can take actually save us money. It's, it's a weird paradox because some things are inaccessible. Like a lot of brands that are sustainable are more expensive. Um, organic food tends to be more expensive. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, there's a lot of actions we can take that actually save us money because we're consuming less. Like shopping secondhand, making things last longer, sharing resources with our friends and family. Like uh, Rohit gets annoyed at me because I don't like buying single-use items or things that like won't be useful multiple times and like things like a drill i'd prefer to like ask our Us. neighbors to borrow yeah. a drill <laughs> and then i'll offer them you know like a baking pan if they need yeah. that. um like those kinds of things right not everyone needs everything yeah we, we can share um, also builds a sense of community it's great we borrow our neighbors drill all the time too <laughs> yeah and and so there's like things like turning down you know in our homes like some of these rules of thumb are really helpful it's like what uses the most energy in our homes? It's heating and cooling, and especially heating and cooling water and air. Um, so turning down the thermostat, not using the, the washer dryer, um, or you're not using the dryer, air drying your clothes, using your mm. washer on cold cycle, um, being efficient when you're using your stove, shifting to an electric stove or induction stove if you have the option. Like, you know, those are the things to really focus on. Don't worry too much about if you leave your lights on. It's great to turn them off. It'll save you a little bit of money. It'll save us a little bit of electricity. But like the big, the big power users are are heating and cooling. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the things I like to tell people when they're they're thinking about uh, how to how to focus their energy. Lots of good practical tidbits there, especially with a switch to an electric stove if you can, wash on cold if you can, air dryer clothes. It's interesting on the heating and cooling. I noticed that the U.S. blasts AC more than anywhere else I've been. So we need to <laughs> we need to blast out some sort of PR stunt so that we can, we can minimize that. Yeah, with all the heat waves happening this summer, I saw some really great TikTok videos about... Um, hacks from other parts of the world for dealing with heat because like the u.s a lot of places are and in europe too are like just not used to it yeah so we're like oh my god what do we do we just turn off the ac but so many places around the world have developed you know systems for doing it like cold towels or fans fans with cold water like um keeping your shades down like things that just seem mm -hmm. in other parts of the world are just normal and here we're still on yeah. All right. Let me ask you my question about offsets and Charlie and how I can use them to offset some of my flights, which is my biggest culprit, I would say my biggest carbon emissions vice. I'm hearing a ton about it's really hard to know whether they'll be sustainable. It's really hard to figure out which one is legitimate or not, that there's a lot of scams going on out there. Can you help me navigate this space? Yes, this is a really hard space and a really important question. Um, Carbon offsets are basically when you pay for carbon to be reduced or removed somewhere else in the world. 
beyond what you can do yourself. And that could be through projects like forestry projects that are capturing carbon in trees. Um, it could be through direct air capture, actually like these high technology projects sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and burying it under the earth. Um, there's all sorts of projects, oceans, storing it in seaweed, storing it in rocks, mineralization, because like we talked about, carbon is naturally occurring. Right. There's so many ways that carbon is naturally stored in, in our carbon cycle and, and um, lots of amazing new companies and existing companies and nonprofits who are learning from natural principles to store carbon and do it right. faster so that we can restore balance. Um, the problem is it's very difficult to verify if the carbon is actually stored, how long it's stored for, or is, if it's just being released back into the atmosphere again pretty soon, um, if those projects are going to be maintained over time, and then also if those projects would have happened anyway without your money. Um, so these are some of the things that experts are concerned about when they're worried about carbon offsets. Is this really additional, or additionality is the term they use? Would this have happened anyway? Like if we're protecting this forest, uh, no one was going to cut it down anyway, but you're sort of paying for the forest to continue to exist, then that's not really a carbon offset. You're polluting, but nothing new is happening to counteract that pollution. Or something that's called leakage is maybe those trees weren't cut down, but some other trees were cut down instead. So in the end, it wasn't really helpful. Or permanence, like especially this is a concern with soil or regenerative farming carbon offsets is that carbon can be stored in soil, but then soil erodes. And so in just less than 10 years, often that carbon is completely emitted back into the atmosphere. So if you've temporarily stored it, have you really, but then you've permanently emitted, is that does not the same thing. Yeah. Um, and then also it's really hard to measure and verify who is who are the parties who are validating this? Is there a credible third party? There's no regulation. So there's very little carbon regulation in the United States, you know, the only regulated carbon markets are like in California and there's some smaller ones. There's not like national regulation and standardization of how this is happening. Um, in Europe, there's more standardized carbon markets, but um, there's a lot of like poor quality verification happening. So mm -hmm. that's what, those are the kinds of things that experts are concerned about. Um, I think it's still, the, the reason why carbon offsets are valuable is because they are a way to actually put a price on carbon, which we need. We need to value carbon appropriately and be willing to pay for it as a, a, it's a, it's a service. It's a good that we're willing to pay for, for it to be reduced or removed. And we want to express demand for high quality projects that are innovative and that are helping us to reach our net zero targets by 2050. Um, so if you have the means, carbon offsets can be a good way to express demand for carbon to be reduced or removed beyond what you could do yourself in your life. Now, when you're going about trying to buy offsets, it can be really tricky to discern good quality offsets from bad quality offsets. So something we've done at Joro is actually do that work for our users. And it's really hard, to be honest, it's not perfect. Anyone who tells you a carbon offset is perfect is lying to you. There's okay. no carbon offset that's 100% definitely gonna reduce or remove exactly that amount of carbon. Um, so that's why we take a portfolio approach with how we do offsetting, just like no single stock has a guaranteed return, no single carbon offset has a guaranteed impact. So we construct a portfolio of different kinds of carbon offset projects with different risk and reward profiles to maximize our chances of impact. So we have some natural solutions like, like forestry that are storing carbon in trees that are um, very well-known technologies. Trees have been around forever. Um, uh, but they're kind of hard to maintain. Um, 
they are happening in developing countries often, which is really great for equity reasons. They're creating jobs and livelihoods and local ecosystems beyond just the carbon removal. Really awesome. Yeah. Um, but the storage is only happening for the lifetime of the tree or maybe a little bit longer until it decomposes. So maybe 30 years, 60 years, 100 years, but not longer than that. Mm. And we balance that in a portfolio with things like... Um, something we're working with an organization called Charm Industrial, which is super new and innovative, has a little bit of technology risk because it hasn't scaled yet. Um, but they're working with farmers in the middle of the US to take agricultural waste, turn it into carbon-rich bio-oil and inject that bio-oil back into unused wells under the earth. Um, so that, that carbon will be stored for millennia under the earth. Um, and that's super permanent. It definitely wouldn't happen have happened if you didn't pay for it because it's really wow. new. Um, but it's still got some technology risk about whether it's going to scale. Right. So those are the kinds of projects we're putting in the Joro portfolio. Um, and I would say that it's still a space that's really evolving. We need stronger third-party standards. We need stronger policy regulation in the space. Um, and we need to also move really fast because we don't have that much time. So it's, I am also grateful that there's lots of startups and nonprofits that are um, trying to, to figure out ways to expand and learn from natural approaches to, to reducing carbon so that we can actually scale it. Sounds like a space ripe for anyone who wants to build a startup and help with net zero emissions, go tackle carbon recycling and specifically more permanent carbon recycling. I have so many reactions. First of all, makes a ton of sense. Sounds clearer. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you said this company was called Charm Farms or? Charm Industrial. Charm Industrial. This sounds like a huge undertaking, very capital intensive. It's newer and it costs a lot. So this is also part of the um, challenge with, with carbon removal is that it can cost vastly different amounts of money. Trees, mm -hmm. super efficient, super well-known, not very permanent, but you can buy a good forestry carbon credit for around $20 a ton. Yeah. Um, Charm industrial costs about $600 a ton right now. It still hasn't come down the cost curve. It's possible that it could, it could reduce yeah. further. Um, but that's why the portfolio we've balanced right now costs about $25 a ton. So we're, we're balancing technologies across lot, lot, uh, really expensive and, and cheaper. I would say to anyone, though, if you're seeing a carbon offset for less than $10 to $15, probably not high enough quality. Um, if you're seeing an offset that happened more than five years in the past, so offsets have vintages, if it's more than five years in the past or more than five years in the future, I would be worried about okay. it. If it's more than five years in the past, it's probably not additional, meaning that the project might have, it, it's clearly exists without your money already. So yeah. I don't know if your money going to it is going to really help it that much. Um, if it's more than five years in the future, there's a lot of delivery risk or technology risk. It's a bit of a trade-off. There's not enough high-quality carbon removal credits being delivered within this sort of 10-year time span. Yeah. So it can be hard to find. Um, I would also say that if you're seeing anything with a permanence of less than like five years, you should try to really understand the methodology there. Maybe less than 10 years, really understand the methodology there. That's something we're starting to think about more at Juro 2 mm -hmm. is as the market is changing, um, how can we start to get tighter with our own criteria? Um, and we also think a lot about environmental justice and constructing our portfolio, because it's not just that we need a more sustainable world with less carbon in it. Uh, we don't want to continue to have like a less just world as well. And so yeah. we want the benefits of carbon reduction and removal and sustainability to be more equally distributed than the harms were. 
Love that. Thank you. So everyone check out Juro. The app is on the app store or wherever you get your apps on Android as well. I can't recommend it highly enough. I think you get a really great snapshot of how your activities are resulting in your carbon emissions. And I love this portfolio that Sanchali you've put together and all the vetting that you've done for us. Is the portfolio approach something that's existing elsewhere as well? It's becoming more common, especially for companies. I would say it's a lot of these things are more accessible for corporate buyers who are buying at large scales. So companies like Stripe, Shopify, and Microsoft have been some of the pioneers in constructing carbon offset portfolios to have more robust sustainability strategies. And we're trying to offer a similar approach to consumers, Mm -hmm. especially because we can buy in bulk and we can demand the same quality as as a a corporate buyer in aggregate. Um, So to offer that sort of portfolio approach to the average customer as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and people can sense. buy into those offsets. You can choose to go net zero as a person, so you can choose to subscribe to offset yeah. everything you buy when you connect your cards, um, and you can set a limit. So you can say, like, I want to offset everything up until thirty dollars a month, which is about the average that people set, um, or that, about the average that people are charged. Um, or you can say, yeah, charge me whatever my carbon cost is. I want to pay for it. Um, yeah. Or you can just choose to offset flights, like you were talking about. Um, it's not perfect. It's always better not to fly when you're guaranteeing that those emissions are not going yeah. to the atmosphere. But um, I think flying is going to be part of many people's lives. We can try to reduce it and yeah. try to avoid it as much as possible. Choose yeah. planes and slower modes of trans- uh, trains and slower modes of transport where possible. Uh, but if you do have to get on a plane, then offsetting is a really great strategy. Yeah, echoing everything you said, and I hope that we will at some point soon get electric planes like we are starting to have electric vehicles. That would be amazing. All right, Sanchali, I want to transition us to your personal story, your founding story of building Juro. And I'm lucky to have known you right from the very beginning. We were in grad school together, and I remember you were using your initial round. I remember you had a ton of no's until you got your first yes from a professor. It was your first check, and that's what really kicked off this incredible journey that you're on and the impact that you're having. And what I want to highlight there from what I was seeing from the sidelines was just how persistent you had to be to even get that first check. And regardless how persistent you needed to be in the subsequent fundraises that you've you've done, you are announcing soon. So we'll release this podcast afterward, your 10 million raise. And that's huge, huge congrats. I just wanted to set the scene for how far you've come and would love to hear more about your founding journey. Thank you. Yeah, it's been quite the journey. Uh, <laughs> and you have been there for a lot of it. Uh, fundraising was not easy for me to start with. I came from the world of international development. I worked at a company called Dahlberg before grad school when we met. Um, so I was living and working in Ethiopia most recently before moving back to the U.S. And when I thought about the idea for Joro, it was really after my own personal journey of trying to live more sustainably, like we were talking about, starting from my food um, and finding it really frustrating to not have any metrics to use to uh, make it to figure out where I was making a difference or if it mattered. Um, yeah. So I started carbon tracking for myself. Couldn't find any tools that really worked, so I started building out this really detailed Excel spreadsheet of the carbon emissions of everything in my life. And <laughs> when I came back to grad school, after a while, I realized this actually, like everyone needs to have a carbon intuition. It's yeah. not just me. 
And it needs to be way easier than this. Where are the places that I can reduce and I will actually make a difference and they're achievable to me? Um, I was able to reduce my emissions by about 30% over the course of six years. And I also saved about $2,000 a year. Um, it was really fulfilling. And I was able to build a lifestyle that was more in line with my values and made me happier and healthier and more fulfilled. And so it's like better this, for the planet. It's better for everyone. I was just feeling like I was like more in line with who I wanted to be in the world that I wanted to live in. And so I felt like there's, it, once I started talking to people about this, I was a little embarrassed at first, but <laughs> <laughs> once I started talking to people about it, people reacted really well, just like you and Marcin were saying like, oh yeah, I feel like I want to, I am already doing things like this in my life and I could be doing it more. Um, or I, w I wish there was a tool that would help me do this. I've thought about it, but I, I don't really know how to get started. And it needs to be easy and automatic. Like we have all these other amazing tools like health and fitness trackers or mindfulness apps, and there's nothing for climate. So uh -huh. what is that going to be? And it's definitely going to be the next app that we all have on our phones, you know? Yeah. Um, so started looking into how can we track that in our spending is really the best proxy for our carbon footprint. We already have financial tracking apps. This is basically just a way of seeing the carbon emissions behind our spending. Um, and that was really the origin for Joro. Um, but when I was set about to fundraise, it was a totally new experience. I'd never yeah. worked in tech. I'd never worked with engineers. Um, yeah. I obviously had really amazing networks from my, my graduate school, from undergrad, but I was really nervous about being a founder and especially a first time founder by myself. You know, I had some co-founders initially, we decided to part ways and I was building the company on my own and, um, it wasn't easy. I definitely, I got a whole bunch of no's, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. before I got any yeses. And then in the end, like was able to raise more money from better investors than I ever thought I would be able to. Let me focus on the initial phases when you were getting a whole bunch of no's, because this is by no means strange. It's very common in the founding journey. What kept you going in that phase? There are definitely several low points where I thought about not doing it anymore. And what I always kept returning back to was, I want this to exist in the world. And now I've talked mm. to enough people, like I'd done over a hundred user interviews by that point. So I had talked to enough people who really wanted this to exist and that I knew would use it if we built it right. And I just kept grounding back in that is like sort of what we call the user problem. But for me was like my problem. Right. <laughs> um, was I want this to exist. I'm going to use it. And I know at least a hundred other people who are going to use it. So I just need to even if nothing else in the world works and no one will give me any money, no one else believes in me, if I can just build something that will help these people, then I will have done something worth doing. And then maybe more people will use it too. But just the idea that the climate crisis is happening so fast, so many people want to do something and they feel so helpless. And if I can just provide a tool that helps bridge that gap, helps people make take productive steps in that direction, I'll be doing something worth doing. What's really powerful here is that you personally had this problem and you felt a ton of conviction in it times the hundred user interviews that just made you super persistent at this. And we hear a lot about find a problem that you have or that people you know have, and that'll really propel you forward. Sounds like this is what really allowed you to dig in here. But I would definitely say so. What were some of your other initial challenges as you were getting ramped up? I imagine 
building your first version of your product, getting the first few people to come on board and join you on this journey? What are some tidbits you can share for folks that are similarly looking to start something new? Definitely. There's so much new to learn. Um, I think there is all of the operational stuff of starting yeah. a company. Um, luckily, I had other founders who I could talk to who are a stage or two ahead of me and asked them a lot of questions, mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes, um, wrote them all down, and now share them with people when I hear that they're starting a company. Um, like, for instance, like you should really get a lawyer when you're incorporating your company. Um, now there's actually much better tools than there were three years ago. So you can also incorporate a company um, with lots of great digital tools. Um, but you should also make sure that equity vests, that there's a cliff. Uh, yeah. So lots of like little things that was really helpful to learn or make mistakes and then learn from those mistakes. Hiring, uh, hiring for engineers and product people and designers roles I'd never done before. Um what I ended up doing was doing a lot of those things myself at first so I could learn enough that I could. Yeah, I remember we were talking about this and I think you were asking, are there folks that are engineers that can maybe help me with interviewing or how would they ask questions? Yeah, definitely asked for a lot of people to come sit on, on calls with me, observed other people and how they interviewed. And then also just like learned some JavaScript and yeah. wireframed stuff myself and so that I knew enough to be able to ask good questions. Yeah. And I remember there was a point where I was considering building a colorful and you were so helpful, A, with the lawyer, B, with just taking an hour to sit with me and walk me through how to get incorporated. And then you recommended wireframe, how to build my first draft of V1 product. And so you were definitely paying that forward and and to me, it's all such a fun ride at the beginning too. There's lots of people who want to help at the same time as it has all these highs. It also has these lows with the rejections and no's and people who don't believe in you. So it sounds like for you, what kept you going was the conviction and the problem and this true feeling that this needs to exist for the betterment of the planet. And it also, it really matters like where you are in life because starting a company is really hard. And yeah. It takes a lot emotionally and financially. I got another part-time job while I was starting the company so that I could not be too stressed about stuff like paying rent and groceries. Um, I also think it helped a lot that I was in a really stable long-term relationship and that I had yeah. someone who could I could talk to all the time and I had family <laughs> who I could talk to. Yeah, um, to the family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rohit has been such a huge like support for me and my parents and my sister and my cousins and my uncles. Like I have three, at least three entrepreneurs in my family, maybe more. So Your mom. Yeah. Lots of, it takes a village. <laughs> it does. No, I so resonate. And I love that you bring this up because I wanted to ask also, when I think of Sanchali, I, you are such a soulful calming, inspiring, uplifting woman. I always say you whisper and make us listen more closely. It's beautiful. And I was wondering, where did Sanchali get this from? I remember at your house, at your parents' house, when we came to visit you, this was in San Mateo. Yes. Uh, I believe it was like 2020 and we were sitting with your parents and your mom started to describe her story and how she and your dad raised you and your sister, both really strong women. And it felt to me like you took so much from her. Both of your parents were working. Uh, your mom's a complete badass and 
started a company eventually and just huge executive. And it felt to me like she really imparted a ton of her values to you. Like we even started talking about at the beginning when we were catching up about you will not change your last name by your dad. Um, but wanted to get you to share a little bit about what you think you took from your parents and how they influenced you. I mean, talk about persistence. I feel like that's the <laughs> number one lesson from my mom. So do not give up. <laughs> I still remember when I was in high school, I think I was like 15 or something. And we were in Boston where I was growing up and we were driving the car listening to NPR and I heard this professor from MIT on the radio, Amy Smith, and she was talking yeah. about her lab, the D-Lab at MIT, where they were creating all these low-cost technologies for the developing world, including water filters and solar heaters and all sorts of things. And my family's from India and I grew up going to India every year. And that really resonated with me because I had always sort of grappled with this, like how, what could I be doing that's supporting the places that I come from, like the people who are just like me, who are living um, much different lives than I am, like, how can I help? And this woman and the work she was doing resonated so deeply with me. And my mom was like, oh, you should email her. I was like, what? No, I'm 15. Like, I barely know how to use email. Like, this, <laughs> I'm not going to email like, well, her. now's a great time to learn. <laughs> yeah. And my mom was like, no, we're going to go home. You're, she was so happy, I think, to see me like passionate about something. She was like, uh, you got, you got to act on this. So she's like, what's the worst that can happen? She won't reply. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's or I awesome. could bother her or something. And my mom was like, no, don't worry about it. So we went home. She helped. She sat with me. I drafted this email, found her email on the website. And I said, like, you know, I'm in high school. It's summer break coming up. I have a few weeks free. Like, I would love to help in any way I can. If there's anything I can do, let me know. She didn't reply. Like, two weeks go by. No reply. My mom said, email her again. I was like, no, that's so annoying. I'm not going to do that. Just, no, no. Email her again. I'm going to sit with you until you email her again. I emailed her three times. Wow. Uh, the third time she replied. And she's like, sorry, I've been really busy. For sure. Come by like to my office next week. We'll talk about it. And so then I went to her office and we talked. And turns out like she had a lot of grad students who needed support on their projects and I could help. And first thing I needed to do was like organize all these files. And so like, it was mm -hmm. really glamorous work. But it was really amazing to be able to learn and work. And ultimately I got to help build a solar cooker and test it in my backyard that summer. And wow. my mom was the reason I did that. And so yeah. that was my first, first teaching and like being really irritatingly persistent. Um, really but I love it. that. You know why, Sanchali? I see so much of that in you today with your sister, with Tara. Like I just see you and she's also such a strong, I love you both so much. I'm your adopted sister for life, You're a third um, sister. but, but it's so great to see because as a 15 year old, you're totally, you're scared. You are not confident. You're like, no, I'm going to bother her. I can't imagine myself right at 15, writing someone twice, thrice right. on my own. Uh, and so I'm so glad that she was there to push you. And I feel like that's totally who you are today. You're a go-getter. Yeah. It's also hard. It's that it's um, totally also like stories of my family are so helpful. I think that we all carry like our family history with us. And the fact that like my grandparents had to struggle and my parents came mm -hmm. to this country and were like trying to make it. And we were always doing things like cutting coupons and buying two of the same shirts that were on sale. And, you know, mm -hmm. lots of just things that you learn through through your family, through oral history, um, and carry with you forward. It's beautiful. It's nice to have a legacy too, where you can stand on the shoulders of those that came behind you and 
make way for your own future, for your family's future. It's a beautiful thing, literally, because you are helping us be better at taking care of our planet. Yeah. Got to make sure that our future, future people have stories to tell too. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sanchali, for coming on Power Hour. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. So fun to catch up. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share. 